Hello and welcome to episode 105 of the Good Good Golf Podcast. Rod Murray at the controls and ready to roll as we dispense with the roadmap and seek the paths and roads less travelled in this golf space. A little over a week ago, the world celebrated International Women's Day and among the campaign themes this year was the hashtag Break the Bias. You might have seen it if you're a Twitter user. The campaign urged people to imagine a gender-equal world, a world free of bias, stereotypes and discrimination, a world that's diverse, equitable and inclusive, a world where difference is valued and, cre- and celebrated. But this is where I thought it really got interesting. Individually, the campaign said, we're all responsible for our own thoughts and actions all day, every day. We can break the bias in our communities, in our workplaces, in our schools, colleges and universities. The question for us today is, can we break the bias in golf? Joining us in a moment to ponder these not insignificant questions is Nicole Wheatley, CEO of London-based golf specialist marketing firm Mediate. Before we meet Nicole, though, let me bring in my co-host Adrian Logue. Logue, big topics these ones. Golf's kind of a microcosm of broader society, I think, on some of these issues. We always get interesting feedback when we do episodes about gender politics. Indeed we do. And uh, I think for many of our listeners, golf is an entryway into the broader issues of gender politics and equality as well. So um, hopefully that's that's the sort of thing that we're doing here. But we're not going to talk just about that. No, we're not. Um, uh, yeah, so got, don't switch we've, off. We've Those got people a, who tend to switch we've off. We've got a marketing is, expert here that's exactly who's going to solve all of golf's problems. <laughs> By the time we're so, done today, golf will be fixed. Yeah. <laughs> so we want to get into that as well. Speaking of which, that's before it. we come to that, and just, <laughs> hold your horses there, Nicole, no giggling. You've got something you need to tell people out as well. This is big issue stuff, but it's not as big as I've got a what's bit it of called? Marketing of my own here. The golf, <laughs> yeah, you need to talk to Nicole. The Golfers Alliance. Uh, Rod, <laughs> we're not going to do that again. No, I'll do that again. <laughs> but you would love to have three days at Barnum. I would love you to have would. three days. At, You're I'm not going to come with us. I can't come with you. But because I don't like you. In, indeed. Uh, you barely tolerate this hour a week, can you? But um, if you didn't bring coffee, we'd have to rethink <laughs> the whole thing. Yes. Sorry, get on with Good it. Good coffee today. So, Barnboogle Dunes from the 5th to the 8th of May. I don't think there's any better deal in the entire world of golf. You've got two world top 100 courses there. Uh, Three nights accommodation, two games of golf at Palm Bugle Dunes itself, uh, one game at Lost Farm. Are, are you a Dunes or a Lost Farm? I'm man? a Dunes guy. Okay, all right. I think it's partly got to do with which he played first. We will get to you, Nicole. Don't panic. <laughs> We're coming. Sorry. <laughs> one game at Bugle Run, uh, three course dinners on Friday and Saturday nights. Uh, all of that. What would you expect to pay for that? Oh, at least fifteen, twenty thousand. Oh, what, what if I said it was thirteen hundred dollars? Thirteen hundred Australian dollars That's for all the extraordinary. Fact. We've still got a few places to fill, um, but they are going fast. Um, I'm glad to hear that. That's good. And uh, Is this Mother's Day weekend? Is that what you've done? You've organised it for Mother's Day weekend? <laughs> that, yes. Are you a genuine, legitimate, certified idiot? <laughs> That's, it, it, look, it just has to be some someday. It's a great time to <laughs> be at It has to be someday. Why not Mother's Day? There you go. Mums are most, most welcome. Most welcome. Come. That's exactly right. In but fact, there's a great Mother's Day gift. There, There is an issue. In fact, that would be... If you're a gentleman, you, <laughs> you stay at home and send send mum. Send mum. Um, where, where can people find out about it? Uh, in the show notes, there'll be a link yep. uh, to the golf uh, thegolfersalliance.com. Golfersalliance.com. Get along and have a look. That really is good value. And honestly, it, it wouldn't matter what you paid to go to Bamboo Dunes. You will have a great time down there. It is one of 
the great golf experiences. Let's meet Nicole Wheatley, who's been waiting patiently while we've gone through all of that nonsense. Uh, Nicole's not only the CEO of Mediate, she's also part of a group producing a soon-to-be-released film called Women in Golf Breaking with Tradition, which looks really interesting. Nicole, welcome. Before we come to some of the bigger issues around gender, golf, marketing, and all that sort of stuff, I'm intrigued by your start in the game. Here's what I gleaned from an interview that you did last year. I saw an advert for a fluent French speaker with a knowledge of golf. My dad played golf and I spoke French, so I applied for the job. Three weeks later, the client I was hired to look after took his shoes and socks off in the Barry Byrne at Canoosti. It was Jean Vanderbilt. <laughs> what were you doing for Jean Vanderbilt, who's yeah, always struck me as one of the good guys of golf? He, he's one of the nicest men um, I've had the chance to work with, actually. He's, he's such a gentleman. And the majority of the conversations Jean and I ever had were not about golf. They were about wine and skiing and all the good things in life, really. Well, he's French, <laughs> but, isn't he? Um, yeah, I was hired as a client. Client, He is French. Well, I speak fluent French, mm-hmm. as, you, as you now know. But um, I, yeah, I moved to Surrey. I didn't have a job. Um, and I just, yeah, I, I went on the hunt for a job and I thought, well, I can apply for this and do something else later down the line and managed to talk my way into this position uh, um, of basically being his day-to-day admin. So, yeah, so I, I looked after kind of, yeah, event, well, entries for players and their sponsors and things like this. But when Jean went to take part in the Open that year, he had to go through qualifying. So I think a lot of people forget that, that he went through qualifying, then went on to lead the Open for three rounds. And, um, yeah, sadly didn't win it in the end, as we know. But um, I think everybody remembers his performance that day much more than the person who went on to win it. So it was a real baptism of fire for me in the golf industry. Um, But such a fun time, it really was. Interesting end of golf to start at. Most people who would be managing golfers and doing those day-to-day tasks you were talking about for John would have come to it because they were golfers first and wanted to work somewhere in the industry. Did you find that to be true? Yeah. And how do you think that's affected the way you perceive the game, having started there as opposed to having an interest in golf first? That's a really interesting question. So I had no idea how male-dominated the golf industry was before I started working. I simply applied for a job that I knew I'd be good at. Um and I think maybe that does give me a bit of a different perspective on things. So, um, yeah, I think the majority of the people I came across who were my peers, um, they, they were all mad keen sports people who just were desperate to work in the golf industry, whereas I was a linguist who <laughs> needed a job. And it was, I mean, I've always been sporty. I've always, like my family are massively into sport and I competed in various different sports um, to quite a high standard, but not golf. Golf wasn't my thing. Golf was the thing me and my brother went and did in um, the local like municipal park um, for fun. So to kind of then end up in this world that was much more serious and much more male-dominated than I ever imagined it was, that was never part of my career path. Yeah. You touch on something more broadly there about golf. You and your brother were sporty types, but golf was an afterthought. We've often discussed on this program how golf has this image problem that kind of points to part of what that image problem is. What's your take on that now? And how do we overcome that so the next generation of Nicoles don't see golf as an afterthought but see it as a legitimate sporting option? Uh, Visibility. 
I think it all comes down to visibility at the end of the day. Um, we need to normalise golf. We need it to become one of five sports or, you know, that, that children consider taking up. You know, when I was a youngster, my parents took me to try every single different sport under the sun. You know, I can remember going to sports camps um, during the summer and trying gymnastics and badminton and um, various different things, even archery, actually, at one point. Um but golf was never on the table. It was never an option. You know, you had to go to a golf club to go and try golf, um, unless you were lucky like we did. And we had a park in Kenilworth where you could go and, you know, get a club and a ball and um, and literally like whack your way around the golf course, but with no instruction whatsoever. But I think without those opportunities for somebody to have a club in their hand and go and hit a golf ball, it's, it's never going to change. And, you know, I think there's been... In the past, well, golf in general, I think that it's really interesting the way that golf has evolved because up until a certain point, it was kind of with the fashion of the day. So, you know, you had rich men who were playing golf and then you had their wives who were playing golf and you saw them, the kind of evolution of the sport going that way. Um, but now it's just become regarded as elitist. You know, it's not something that's, an, a, an everyday person would go and try unless they were invited to go and do it. You, you're always fond of saying, Rod, the more people you get playing golf, there's a certain percentage of mm. them that it'll yeah. just stick. Like yeah, it, so it, it's, it's very, it's got this built-in conversion yeah. factor um, where you know some percentage they'll, they'll get a taste of it and they'll want yeah. they'll, they'll want it for the rest of their life. <laughs> yeah. Which is always what plugs in neatly into that public golf discussion. The role of public golf here is crucial, is it not? I know that it's a somewhat different culture there in the yeah. UK to what we have here, but that notion of a public facility where everybody's welcome is crucial, is it not, in changing that image? Because we know, and it's true also in the UK, golf actually isn't elitist. Most people who play are not wealthy, white, middle-aged men. They're the most visible, and they're not hard to find. There's clubs full of them all over the world. But it's not the only thing that yeah. golf has to offer, is it? And that feels like the more difficult message to get across to me, particularly when most non-golfers' experience of golf is golf on television. We watched yesterday, huge news here in Australia, Cameron Smith, uh, Smith won the Players' Championship, yeah. which is an extraordinary thing. That's most people's perception of golf. What do they see when they turn on the TV? Sawgrass, bright green grass, bright white sand, obscene clubhouse. Massive amounts of money, celebrating the biggest purse in the game while there's a war happening in Europe. A golden mm. golfer a statue. Go yeah. Let's not <laughs> to, the, to the CGI goal. But these things don't help, do they, Nicole? And I wonder what we can do from within golf no. to change some of those perceptions. Yeah, something that's really puzzled me recently is the RNA appointing Gareth Bale as an ambassador um, to golf because... You know, you've got him and Niall Horan as ambassadors for the game. And they're, you know, probably the worst example of people who play golf because I suspect they've never paid for a single piece of golf equipment in their entire careers. You know, it's not... I don't know. If, we, if we're going to get away from golf being elitist, rich sports, then we need to... It is a numbers game. It's about getting more people through the door. It's about getting more clubs into more people's hands. It's about getting school children the opportunity to try golf. Um, we have um, a charity over here called the Golf Foundation who works directly with primary schools. And they run, um, run programmes through primary schools of PGA professionals, giving 
kids the chance to try golf for the first time and a certain number of those like you say are going to suddenly stick with the sport and then then they're invited to go to the local golf club and get on this pathway to play golf and I think the more often that that happens the more likely it is that we're going to find new talent you know because the only way that golf is going to get better as a sport is if we're attractive to talent of any kind whether that's players or people working in the industry we need to become a much more attractive um proposition uh, if we're going to attract talent into the sport pull, pull from a bigger pool of players mm. i didn't think we were going to get a hit piece on yeah. niall horan and gareth Bale. <laughs> no, that's fantastic this, to be a part was, of isn't it i love that yeah that's <laughs> good um, <laughs> one thing i uh would love to see with golf but logistically it's just it's very difficult is just have you, you talked about visibility and normalizing golf. Um, and you say, I, I just caught the train here this morning, and you see people with yoga mats over their shoulder. It, it's just a very normal mm-hmm. sight. Um, and uh, other sports, I think it, it's acceptable. You know, you carry tennis bag or something with you, cricket kit, mm-hmm. cricket kit. You never see people with a golf, a set of golf clubs slung over their shoulder right. in the train, or if they really? are. So you, you might go up and say, oh, you're out of bounds or something. So that's really a bit of growth. People have said that to me. I used to have to catch a train to, to the golf course. <laughs> but uh, the, um, I thought it was hilarious. Um, but First time. How do you, like, the equipment is just so much equipment. And I think we put this expectation on new players that they've got to buy a big set and they've got to buy mm. a big bag to put that big set in and then they've got to, you know, they've got to haul a buggy around and they've got to have the right shoes. I, range finder and a driver and a three-wood the and whole, a full the set whole of golf thing. clubs. And, yeah, mm-hmm. But despite all that, I mean, a little bit different in England where, and, and the UK in general where golf clubs are on, often right near train stations. Mm-hmm. Not here. Here it's really difficult. Like you're not you're not going to get public transport and then walk five kilometres to a golf course, even in metropolitan areas here. It's just not accessible. No. Um, That's a difficulty which I'm not sure Nicole could solve. But, Nicole, if I made you the czar of golf for a day, you're a marketer, what's your pitch to the non-golf world? What would you do? We've already excluded yeah. Gareth Bale and Niall Horan. And we know what, no cliches, it. please. We no, don't, no, what's like, your pitch? What What would you – What's something incredibly original to you? Right. How would you sell uh, golf no. to the non-golf public? <laughs> something incredibly original. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, I suppose that's where the film comes into it is that, you know, if we want to change the narrative around golf, I think it's really easy to look at golf and sit with really old-fashioned perceptions of the game, which is middle-aged men in chinos, you know, and it's easy to right think that's what it's like <laughs> because, <laughs> Two of us you know, quite... right here. <laughs> <laughs> in our chinos. So. That's fine. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> But you're not the only people who play golf. And I guess that's my point, is you turn on the television and everybody's in that particular uniform or, you know, you look back through the years and golf is presented in a very standard way. And it's very easy for people to make the assumption that nothing has changed because there's no new there's no new story being presented to them. Whereas, you know, for us within the industry and the people who love golf, we know that in our golf course in our golf clubs there are extraordinary young people there are extraordinary people from different different ethnic backgrounds all of whom play golf all of whom love the sport and we have that commonality and the problem is is that if we want to attract more people like them 
then we have to start showing the fact that these are the people who play golf. And that's what got me into doing the film in the first place was a general frustration that I knew all these amazing women working in the golf industry and they were never given a platform and their, their stories had never been shared and never been told. And if their stories were never told, then it was still easy to carry on thinking that things are the same and they're not they've changed even in my career like the last 20 years things have changed so dramatically um but nobody's telling those stories ironically most of that change has probably come in women's professional golf hasn't it i think in particular how the women dress in golf unthinkable the outfits that we see the women getting around in today at the top level would have been unthinkable 20 years ago uh, for, for for many people, and now it's kind of considered centre. And that's been a huge yeah. step forward. Your daughter is how old? Like 17, yeah. 18, 19? She would look at the old PGA if she was 19 in the mid-90s and say, there is nothing about that that appeals to me, big yeah. baggy shirts and polo shirts and all that sort of stuff. She would look at the old PGA now and say, oh, they look good. Yeah. That's well, a product that looks attractive. You, you look like you can make an athletic move. That's exactly right. You, you're, you're, you're playing a sport, and that's been true also in netball and lots of other women's sports, I think, where the uniforms have started to adapt mm-hmm. in that way, and that's important to to sort of do that. I wonder the other thing that always intrigues me, Nicole, I'm not a much of a sport watcher, but on the odd occasion when I might be watching some other sport on TV, I never see golf advertised between sets or overs. When you watch the golf, yeah. you see lots of promotion for the NRL, the AFL, the Premier League, if you're in the UK. We don't make an effort, golf mm-hmm. as a conglomerate, <laughs> to talk outside of golf, do we? We're almost – there's a no. golf channel in the US. There's no need to talk outside of golf. There's a big enough golf diaspora that we don't feel like we need to talk to anybody outside of golf. I think there's a real danger in that. You could be a golf yeah. administrator, go your whole life, speak to a 1,000 journos and not one of them would be anything but a golf writer. That's quite possible. Mm-hmm. And that's dangerous, isn't it? Yeah. We see it a lot yeah. We see it a lot with marketing campaigns over here that um, you know, from from national governing bodies where there's these incredible marketing campaigns and all it is is golf talking to golf about how great golf is. And we already know. What what we need is for people who don't play golf to know. But you're right, there's no kind of um there's no strategic marketing effort to talk to non-golfers about golf but I think a lot of that comes around the fear fear of failure almost you know there are so many barriers that need to be broken down and so many perceptions that need to be changed that where do you start and because people don't know where to start and don't know where to finish it's kind of like well we'll we'll sit back and see what happens but also there's a reticent I can't say reticence (laughs) reticence in golf clubs for things to change you know, the people who are in golf clubs and who are part of golf club culture are quite happy there. That's why you know, they don't yeah. necessarily <laughs> want things to, to change. Yeah. You're threatening the whole fabric of yeah. what we've well, built here. Yeah, indeed. Uh, yeah, so the no, whole fabric, yeah, but they're really happy with it. If only there was some sort yeah, of... Yeah, they're really happy with golf club culture. So If there was some sort of movie that was Sorry, going I'm talking to, over you. Um, we've to got sort a of lag on the change internet. that culture. <laughs> Is that- Let's talk about the movie, Nicole. Tell us about... Uh, this movie, the idea. Of it, I, I watched some of the clips on YouTube this morning. You, um, Laura Davies is talking very sensibly. I've heard her talk about some of this stuff before. Why can't we have women captains of golf clubs? I mean, it doesn't make any sense that you couldn't, and all of those sorts of things are true. Tell us about the movie. What are we going to see? What do you hope to achieve? And what have been the difficulties of making movies? Goodness me, that's got to be harder than learning golf, doesn't it? That's a killer of an industry. <laughs> 
Well, I'll be really honest with you. Um, what I was initially asked to do, I said no. Yep. Sensible. <laughs> it, it, yeah, so sensible. So um, it, it all came about because there's there's an incredible French lady called Sandra Mesrine who she took up golf about six or seven years ago and was absolutely obsessed by the game. And she's a documentary maker. Um, she made a lot of documentaries around equestrian sport, which was her passion. That's what she grew up. Um, she grew up with horses and horse riding and competed to quite a high level. And she made these incredible documentaries around female farriers um, in the States. So a, a farrier, in case people don't know, is somebody who changes horseshoes. And she made um, a film about female farriers in the in the States that fundamentally changed the sport. So people saw this film. It was sponsored by Musto, a big brand over there. Um, and as a result of it, more and more women applied for these jobs because they saw that it was actually a viable career for them. And so when she decided to do a golf documentary, having fell in love with golf, she used the power of social media to find somebody who could help her put the stories together um, and as I said when I was first asked I, I said no because it's so out of my comfort zone so people who write for a living we we write other people's stories and that's what I do on my day-to-day -day basis whether it's writing a press release or an article it's a start and a finish it's your own words whereas this is taking other people's words and putting them together to make sentences that make sense and that is an incredibly hard job it's a skill set that I really didn't think I had um, but over the course of several months with the help of um, Dr Ali Bowes uh, we used to meet in a pub halfway between my house and her house and we go through you know, no, sit there with a pint we brought the average age of the pub down by about 20 years <laughs> and we used to sit there and go through these videos and interviews and we would watch them with earphones and we'd write down the bits that were interesting because it was I think when we got involved with the project there was already about 50 people had been interviewed and it is everybody from amateur everyday golfers to women who've played like for Walker Cup teams who are now in their 80s we spoke to founding members of the LET whose story has never been told um you know, current tour professionals. We even get to speak to Keith Pelly and people like that. And what we wanted to do was, when we were looking at the interviews, we were trying to find the story. We couldn't work out what the story was. And for us, the more we watched, the more we started to understand that the story is... It's, it's very much, you know, here's golf and here's what you think it's like. And there's some hilarious stories in there. Um, it'll make, <laughs> yeah, make you laugh out loud. Um but there's also stories of women who've made a career in golf, kind of like me, by accident, you know. It's just the job that they took. And here they are 20 years later regarded as trailblazers without even realising that they were. And they're the ones that have, you know, when we're talking about um, International Women's Day, they've broken the bias without even realising they were doing it. And they're now in positions where, you know, they're using their power to change golf whether that is influencing change within the golf clubs or having a voice in places where they would normally never have been heard or putting themselves forward like me to do things like this you know I've always been behind the scenes I've always put words into other people's mouths so to do this for me is quite hard um to actually 
be front and centre but I know it's so important that if people like me aren't front and centre and we're not visible then we can't change everything and you know the film itself is there's some incredibly inspirational stories within it um, and some tragic ones as well you know we talk we hear a lot about ladies European tour players who just who didn't make it through no fault of their own through complete financial ruin you know they were unable to carry on because they didn't get the support we look at the reasons why the women's professional game didn't grow in the same way the men's did um we also look at heritage and you know go right back to the beginnings of the female game with you know the fishwives of Musselboro who um you know they they just used to go and play golf because that's what their other halves did and they were strong physical women and um you know the founding of the Himalayas club in St Andrews is something we touch on as well which is a putting club um which is still there now so mm. there's just there's so many stories within it but the important thing that for me was to create a film that would change the narrative it would change the way that people look at women and women's golf and I want people to come away thinking oh I thought I knew everything and actually I don't and the future's really positive and it's just really exciting to be at a point where we're nearly ready to share it we're having the same difficulties that a lot of people do when they put documentaries together or so I'm told uh, of accessing rights and things like this because over here you know, the WPGA became the LET and then parts of it were owned by the LGU. And so nobody knows where archives are. Nobody knows where, you know, all of that information is kept. So trying to track that down with the help of social media and friends has been a challenge. But it's, um, yeah, I'm really proud of what we've done. And I'm really excited for people to see it because, yeah, as I say, we've uncovered so many interesting stories that, people people need to hear on the women's professional scene this is all this is something that i find intriguing we've seen a real uptick here in australia and i think it's true in the uk as well i'm not sure about america but in women's sports the aflw has become very popular women's cricket in particular here in australia has really boomed in probably the last five to ten years we haven't seen a similar thing with golf but i wonder how much of that is because in fact nicole in terms of sport and women, golf's been a leader, hasn't it? It's been possible to make a living as a female professional mm. golfer for the best part of 50 years. Now, not necessarily a great living and not all who want to do it, but it has yeah. been possible. So golf's been a bit of a leader, which most people would find surprising. It's quite extraordinary when you think about it, isn't it? So I don't think we've seen the benefits of the boom in interest in women's sports the way others have. Yeah, I guess that kind of leads to two points. Um so, yeah, you're right, the, the the female European tour started, I think it was only about six years after the men's tour. So the fact that they started around the same time and to start off with prize funds were the same and the, they had about the same amount of events as well. Um, you know, Carlsberg were the first sponsors of... Um, of the female tour, uh, which I found quite astonishing. Um, and there's some great photographs that we've got of um, the 12 women who turned professional in order to actually take part in it with their little, like, cup, cups of beer that's, in the, bloke, in the paper. might have, might have suited um, the, uh, the fishwives of Musselboro. <laughs> that's right. They'd be oh, right into it. It would have suited... They would have been really happy yeah. with beer. <laughs> um, but also, with, with golf, I think... You see, the rise of female sport, kind of when you're talking about cricket, 
we take cricket as an example so I grew up I was born while my dad was playing cricket so that was kind of my my founding in life was, was definitely cricket um but if you look at the rise of of female cricket or even female football over here it's very much team-led so I think it's really easy for people to get behind their local well their team so you know for example over here we had the 100 this year which was um a competition that was run with men and women in parallel and so you would have the men's two men's teams would take part in 2020 on the same day as the equivalent female teams um so the crowd were getting to see both the men and women play and then that's kind of led to a big boom in terms of tv viewing and things like that as well and they showed it on terrestrial television and sky at the same time so first of all, first of all, you've got it on like free television in the UK, which is incredible because we don't get golf. You can only watch golf here if you pay for it. Same here. Um, apart from the Masters. Yeah, yeah same. Mm. So, but for the first time, this was female sport being shown on national television. And the same with football as well. We get that. And you get that team kind of a, a, allegiance as well. You know, it's they're, they're very tribal sports. Um, with golf, they're individuals. So we can really get behind like the Solheim Cup or the President's Cup or, you know, things like that, because that's our team. But I think with golf, because it's individuals, you know, you might not even have a favourite golfer who's the same nationality as you. It's, it's really different the way that we engage with the sport, I think. Well, golf's unique in that way, isn't it, Nicole? There are millions of people who are yeah. mad soccer fans who have not kicked a ball for 40 years or perhaps ever. And never will again, and yet it makes up the bulk of people who – if you don't play golf and you watch it on television, there has got to be something wrong with you, does there not? I just cannot imagine a world where that makes any sense. If you don't play, you no. don't watch. Not at all. So tapping into that base is, is trickier. Yeah. The, it's the only sport where you turn up to watch – in an outfit where you might actually be allowed <laughs> That's to play. Exactly right. Yeah. Hoping to get the call up over the rope. It's always puzzled me. <laughs> it's a, it's a quite... Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like we've got a spare space. Yeah. Is anyone free? Yeah. You've reminded me of one of my favourite stories ever. There was a guy here from Melbourne who used to be on a forum that he posted on a forum that I went to, and he went to the Masters one year. It was his big. Thing, and it was the practice day, and he took this photo at the front gate. There Somebody was this up with Japanese chap yeah. with this set of like, and really old, crappy golf clubs, trying to explain to the guard at the gate that he was told it was the practice rounds, and he figured that he'd be able to go out and practice at what his ticket entitled him to. Can you imagine? I saw somebody behind, like behind the ropes, at the Australian Open one time, pulling a pool buggy full of clubs at the lakes. Uh, I don't, they were on the grounds wow. with wow. their clubs. Watching the golf with their full set of clubs, it was bizarre. The funniest thing, <laughs> this is not a, this is kind of not related. At Royal Sydney one year, Nicole, they had the Australian Open there. They set up the press tent like one of those temporary marquees across two of the tennis courts, and there were about six tennis courts at Royal Sydney. And it was the Tuesday when you go and pick up your press credentials. So myself and BJ, the editor of Golf Australia magazine, we turned up there and we were outside to our eternal shame, smoking, uh, having a smoke after we picked up our credentials. And this woman came down and she had her tennis racket bag and she sort of marched up to the gate where there was a security guard and she went to walk through and he said, oh, no, you can't come in here. And <laughs> she said, what do you mean? And he said, no, no, well, the you know, it's closed for the week. She said, but I, I have a regular booking every Tuesday at midday. I'm a member of the club. And he said, well, not this week. And she said, 
well, we'll see about that. She <laughs> turned on her heel, and the person in the world I felt most sorry for that day was the club general manager who was about to get a knock on the door <laughs> and a spray of epic proportions from this woman who thought she was going to be playing tennis that day was <laughs> stopped from doing so. Amazing. Yeah, nothing to do with any of it. What were your own sort of feelings about or towards golf, can you recall, Nicole, before you entered the industry? You mentioned as a kid that you'd sort of been exposed to it in some way. You sort of had a bit of a bash around the park. But did you have any preconceived notions about yeah. golf and what are they? how have they changed since you've sort of been part of the industry? Wow. Well, my, my earliest memories of golf are watching the Masters on television with my dad. And it was a bit of a – because we were such a sporty family, it was like our, our whole year was dictated around what sporting event mm. was on television. So there'd be, like, <laughs> there'd be the Oxford-Cambridge rowing, obviously mm-hmm. – um, and then the, I think it was Masters, Oxford, Cambridge rowing. Then it was the Grand National. Then you get into the cricket season. Then it would be the rugby. Um, but that that was my year. It was all year round. But I remember watching the Masters and just thinking, it was a beautiful location. And I, I do remember, you know, Seve and people like that playing and being really impressed by them. But as a game, I think really apart from going to play with my brother, which I really enjoyed, to be fair, but I'd never been, um, I think my first real involvement with <laughs> with a golf club was I was the um, drinks buggy girl at the Warwickshire, uh, which is a, a golf club kind of close to where I grew up, and that was my first kind of exposure into club life, um, that- was as a person who worked there, and... It was, you know, I, I had a really good summer. It was a nice sunny summer. It was not a rainy summer. And I just, yeah, I drove around a, on a golf buggy and sold drinks to rich men. Does that and, still and, go and on? And that didn't put you off the game? That was, that. <laughs> I think I was just very lucky that the club that I was at was very friendly. Yeah, it was very friendly. It it never put me off. And a a lot of the guys who played there were they were sort of they were very down to earth. But but that was yeah, that was my first experience of golf clubs until I started working in the industry, and that was just. I mean, I can remember going to meetings in my early career. I can remember one place in particular, turning up to a meeting, being told that I couldn't go into the room where the meeting was, and they had to change the meeting room because it was it was part of the club that wasn't open to women. So you know, to kind of have that in my early career as something that was really normal, just yeah, quite shocked me. And you know, writing for various different magazines and um having my work published under the name of a man that's happened to me really um so yeah i think that was a a shock for me it was a shock for me that it was so male orientated and that being a woman was a disadvantage in certain situations you know it's it was easy to be overlooked or mistaken for the promo girl. You've, well, you've, <laughs> and that happened on more than one occasion. You've probably touched on what I was about to ask you next, which is what do you see as a woman in the industry that we don't because we're men? It, it's so, it's, yeah, if it's not happening question, to you, yeah. it's hard to, to see it. Mm. Wow. That's. It still happens to me. So I'll go to, I've, um, obviously, PGA show in Orlando happens every year. And I've been there with two guys who work for me and people we meet will talk to both of them and not talk to me. 
Mm. And it, this happens on a regular basis still, which is really sad indictment for the industry. But I've learnt not to take offence at these things because they're much more embarrassed to discover that I'm the owner of the business than I am offended. You know, I think it's, it's, it is easy to make those judgments. I think it's easy for men to make bad judgments because um, I am the exception to the rule. Um, you know, it's, I can, there's, if we go to like a magazine day here in the UK, I'm one of a handful of women who are there. You know, there are very few women who own their own businesses. And, and I've remind since 2007. So I've been around for a fair amount of time now. But, you know, to find people who are at the same level as me, it, it's unusual. Um, but that doesn't mean that it's OK to, to assume that I am an underling to the, to the men that I'm with. Mm. Does it take some courage to be a woman in the golf industry? And a sort of a sub-question of that, is golf different, worse is probably the wrong word, but worse than other industries, do you think? Or are these general perceptions that golf is sort of just a part of? It, it's, it's hard for me to comment because the majority of my career has been in the golf industry, so I, I don't really know anything else. I do know that some of the behaviour I've seen in the golf industry is unacceptable and does get kind of um, brushed over. It's very easy to just go, oh, yeah, well, we'll just forget that happened. Um, whereas I think that if it was in other industries, people would be called out on it. It's very difficult to call out men on bad behaviour in the golf industry because it will come back on you. And there's certainly been situations where things have happened to me that I've not spoken to people about because I've been worried about the repercussions of that, um, which I shouldn't. I should have been strong enough to actually stand up for myself. Um, so, yeah, I, I can only talk about my own experiences which on the whole have been positive. You know, I've been really lucky that along the way I've met men who've had more faith in my ability than I have. You know, they've been the people who've stood behind me and kind of pushed me forward and encouraged me to do the things that I do. And there's a few people who, you know, without their support, I don't think I would have, um, I don't think I would have started my own business. I don't think I would have been brave enough to, you know, start knocking on the door of the RNA and, <laughs> telling them they need to change the world or you know or to accept the opportunity to come and talk to people like you um yeah so yeah there's been a lot of male cheerleaders in my career in a way uh calling out those behaviors when you see it it can get in the way of your actual job can't it because it becomes all about that yeah and and, you, and all of a sudden you, you can't yeah. actually do the job you ask Meg mclaren do. Exactly. Ask Meg McLaren, yeah. who has taken over so much of her yeah. professional life, is talking about these issues, which she's interested in, but she was never interested in becoming the poster child for this stuff, which is kind the of what golfer that she can be. That's right. She's to her credit, she's embraced it and yeah. she never backs away from it. But I'm, it does distract from what she's trying to achieve in life, which is exactly that to become the best golfer she can be. What about that notion yeah. of and and to sorry, the sorry, Nicole, you answer finish. No, no, you carry on, sorry. That notion of courage. Uh, I'm not convinced that necessarily people decide, I'm going to be courageous and do this. I think generally you find yourself in a position where it's like, oh, wow, well, I'm going to have to do this now, which I didn't mm. expect to do. Do you find that or have you found that? Yeah. Some of the things that you've outlined there are genuinely a bit scary. I'm not sure how most blokes would. Uh, some, maybe it's not courage always, but it's just like, can I be 
bothered getting up for this today again. Possibly. Like that. Is that... What's it like to be a woman, I guess, is the question, Nicole. Can you just answer yeah. that very simple, straightforward question for us? What's it like? <laughs> very, very straightforward. Um, right, where to start? Um, it takes a lot of courage. And there was one woman who I interviewed for the documentary, um, who I've known for most of my career, and she was absolutely terrified to be sat in front of a camera. And it took her an incredible amount of courage to do it. And I, I asked her afterwards why she'd agreed. And she's like, you know, if I, if I don't start doing this, nobody else will. And I think that women in the golf industry now who've made really successful careers feel like if I don't stand up and try and make this different for the next generation, it is never going to change. And that is something that falls on our shoulders quite heavily. You know, I won't name the person i'm thinking about but laura I, was, Davies. I was chatting Come to on, a woman can... who was given a really you know it's not laura but i was chatting to a woman who was given um a really senior position in golf and she didn't want it but she accepted it because it was the first time a woman had ever been offered this role oh, wow. and that is a different kind of courage that i don't think men really appreciate mm. is that occasionally we're given opportunities to do things that we don't want to do but if we say no then we're not moving the sport forward so you have that kind of balance of decision making in your head the whole time of is this good for me is this good for golf and we have a responsibility for both um and that's really tough that takes a lot of courage mm. so to you know to be in situations where i'm being invited to talk to people about um equity and inclusion within golf because I'm a woman who's worked in the golf industry for 20 years. That doesn't necessarily mean that I have the expertise to speak about it. It just means that I'm the best person to speak about it because there's nobody else. Mm. And that's, again, that's not really the right way around doing it. We should be looking at really talented people who specialise in these fields and bring them into golf to talk to us about equity and inclusion and gender balance. You know, not relying on the people who've lived it and their experience because we've battled our way through it to get to where we are without pissing too many people off if mm -hmm. <laughs> i'm allowed to say that mm, of course you're, yeah. <laughs> but it really is like Mandatory, it's but. about having an opinion and not annoying everybody at the same time golf, golf really needs all sorts of people doesn't it like and just like any industry needs yeah. all sorts of people you you got into golf because you know there, there was this need for some organisation around all sorts of activities. There's, you know, golf. People don't really, you know, they say, oh, how do you get to work in golf? Well, I'm, I'm a software developer. You're you're a journalist. We've, everyone, I think everyone comes at it through their own skill set. And there's... Doesn't it tend to be, I have this skill set, I love golf, how can I bring it into golf? That's how it happened for me. There can be a little bit of that. Um, but, yeah, mm. just like people find themselves in a position where they're suddenly like, oh, look, I'm, I'm actually, I'm working in the golf industry here. But, and then I think you do have to pursue it a little bit. At some point you have to sort of say, okay, this opportunity is open to me. I'm going to pursue it. Um, we spoke to uh, Emma Ballard, uh, who is a, a former colleague of yours, I think, Nicole. Um, and yeah. uh, she, that really strikes me about her career that she was presented with opportunities and she often didn't know what she was doing but made the most of, mm. like, worked harder than anybody 
could be reasonably expected to work and made yeah. the most of those opportunities and converted them into the next thing and then the next thing. And then every single time just worked as harder than anybody could reasonably be expected to work in that thing and converted it into the next thing. Um, but it's the same in any industry. I, I went on a, a course, like a filmmaking course, when I was like 22 or something like that because I, I, I thought, oh, movies are wonderful. I want to get into film. And the they, they said, you, don't, you know, you don't have to be a director or a props person or a, an actor or something to get into movies. A movie production needs managers. It needs project managers. Mm-hmm. It needs caterers. It needs uh, carpenters. It needs, you know, there's all sorts of ways to be a part of the, the film industry. And, uh, you know, you can... Can't see you being any of those, to be honest with you. You as a carpenter is a terrifying person. Even catering is a terrifying person. But golf is the same. Golf is the same. You need, there's all those travel, you know, people organising travel. And all that. So there's lots of different ways into the golf industry. And golf needs all of those sorts of people and needs to be welcoming to those sort of people mm. as well, just like any other industry. What are the bright spots, Nicole? When you look around, what do you see that makes you think, this is moving in the right direction. Or I feel like we're inching in the right direction, particularly in the space of gender. I don't know about the rest of diversity as far as golf goes. I think there's a long way to go in all those areas, as there is with gender equality. But I feel we're inching in the right direction. What positives do you see? What's good that's happening in the game? What's good that's happening? I think, and again, I'm talking from a UK perspective here because that's the market I know the best. Um what was really encouraging during the pandemic is seeing the way in which the industry came together over here. Um, I think that up until that point, been, there's so many governing bodies or parts of governing bodies and associations, and they all have their own agenda. And for once, everybody had the same agenda, which was to try and get golf courses open and was to try and give people the opportunity to go out and play golf because it's good for their mental health. Um, And for the first time, we saw all of these agencies working together for the good of golf. And that, for me, was a really encouraging thing. And I would like to hope that that would continue. So rather than everybody going off in different directions and trying to get their piece of the pie, you know, it's we talked earlier on about the fact that we don't market golf. Well, if all those people came together and put a little bit of pot of money together and did it for the right reasons everybody would benefit and I think that's what we don't see enough of in golf is is collaboration is people appreciating that you know brands have brands have an audience and we don't talk to that audience about all the amazing initiatives that are going on with in golf and the things that they can support you know there's there's no sort of cohesion um and I'd, I'd like to see a lot more of that. But, yeah, that, that for me definitely in the pandemic over here was a real, like, ray of light that actually when there's, it's for the greater good, we can all work together for the, for, the, for the right reasons, you know. And there has been a bit of a boom when it comes to participation over here. What I really hope is that golf courses don't take that for granted they and will. I'm slightly concerned that they might do. <laughs> of course they will. No, they will. Yeah. But they already have. There's that. And they will I was pay being the price. optimistic there. <laughs> there's, there's a UK. They will pay the price. Yeah. They will. They will. Yeah. There's a UK news organisation. I think it's called the Golf Business News. And I, I, I just subscribed to yeah. their, their feed. And before the pandemic, I used to think of it as the golf course closing news because <laughs> every second story was like some golf other golf course, course closing. Yeah. 
I've noticed that's turned around. My very unscientific observation of it is that the last mm-hmm. couple of years, there's very few course closing stories coming out of the golf business news and a lot more positive stuff. But it, it, it just does really strongly suggest that it'll be like, oh, okay, now we've got all this money. We can buy a new clubhouse and um, – New paths and we can reintroduce the joining yeah. fee yeah, and improve our car park and <laughs> that's right. all, all that nonsense stuff. That we can put our yeah, we can put our fees up again. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. It's interesting, isn't it, Nicole? We were moving in the right direction, weren't we? Golf participation had this huge dent. There, it was forced. I mean, people have been telling golf clubs for years, "You've got to change," and they didn't want to listen until there was really no choice. It was like, okay, it's either we're going to go out of business. Or we change, and then we'd started to see some shifts. Golf clubs looking for innovative, creative ways to increase memberships. Along comes the pandemic, fills up golf courses, and the response is, "Oh, all fixed now. That's fine." Yes, yeah, success hides yes. issues. Yeah, it really does. Like when when there's a place is awash yeah. with cash, and it happens with businesses. Yeah, cool. A business is awash with cash. Look at the studios that, here. That success hide. <laughs> 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 it hides, hides problems. Yes, indeed. Sorry, Nicole, you were saying something there. We've got this internet lag. I'm not talking over the top of you just for the fun of it. We've got this lag. <laughs> no, there is definitely a delay. Uh, no, I was thinking, I've, I've always been very much of the opinion that, you know, people want to try golf, but they don't have the time to, they don't know where to, and then all of a sudden that's what the pandemic put together, mm. was all these people who for years were like, oh, I'd really like to try that, but I don't know when I'm going to have time. They Suddenly they had time. Yeah. They had time, they had opportunity, they knew where to do it. And it was a really simple like combination of things that we just need to replicate. But I think you're right, in terms of golf clubs, they're very happy to sit back and just go, well, we're full now, so everything's going to be fine, without thinking about the fact that their ageing membership are all going to die off, um, which in a way might not be, be someone a bad else's thing, problem because then. when that ageing membership dies off, then we can change the rules. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, these things do take generational change, don't they? Um, the, people have the time, but do they have six hours? Like, you know, when you factor in commuting to a course no. and then going, and courses don't have- Lots do. Lots of us lot, play lots, golf and lots of us do that every well, week. Well, like, lots of men millions do, but of people like, every week. Something, something that, uh, you know, struck me with trying to run this, uh, the Golfers Alliance, there's no crèche facility at um, Barnboogle Dunes. It, it's com- yeah. completely oh, it's totally unfamily friendly. Totally yeah, kid unfriendly. Quite, 100%. It's quite kid hostile. Yeah, it's almost fact. deliberate, isn't it? Yeah. And you can't. You can't go if you've got children to look after. You can't go and focus on your golf for six hours at a place like that. Courses won't welcome you to take your toddlers out on the course with you. No, for the most part. But no. for for as wonderful experiences, Barn Bugle Dunes is for a golfer. Not it, to mention for the price. For the price, can you believe that price? <laughs> um, it's for uh, the price. I mean, I'm I'm tempted to get a flight. <laughs> you come on, yeah. do it, Nicole. So, um, come on over. Uh, but yeah, it's it makes us consider like where we would host the next one of the golfer golfers alliances events because we we got into this thinking we've got to learn how to how to run an event which is inclusive and, yeah. and that that was a big black mark against against the facilities don't necessarily exist to have the inclusion that you want we were starting to see conversations in that direction weren't we Nicole before the pandemic clubs were talking about things like on site crèches other uses for the clubhouse day to day apart from just to service the few golfers who might be trickling in to have a drink. That seems to all have yeah. stopped. But will that perhaps have been a benefit that we've at least been there when the clubs start to see the inevitable drop-off 
from the pandemic boost that we've had, will we start to look back at some of those conversations? And how important are those things, do you think? And the crazies in particular, you talk about women, you often talk about women with young children. Golf really is a very difficult yeah. option if you're in that position unless you've got somebody handy to look after. What is to be gained out of that? Yeah. Um, no, I don't. See, I think with golf clubs, they have a tendency to not do anything until the last minute and then they panic, uh, which is which is a show, certainly my experience of marketing. When golf clubs come to me, it's generally because they don't know what else to do. Um, but I think in terms of the conversation around women, so um, I, I have a six-year-old daughter and I'm currently a member of a golf club where I don't feel like I can take her with me I certainly don't feel like she's welcome but I've always said to people that if you could give me a golf club that had a crash I will give you my child and if you have a bar that sells Prosecco I'll bring my friends and it's a really simple thing you know I do <laughs> it's as simple as that you give me the opportunity to get rid of my child play golf and have a drink I will do those things mm -hmm. but nobody caters for us because well we don't need to because we don't have as many women it's like, well, you don't have us. It's like a vicious circle. Are you familiar with you the don't chicken have, and the egg? <laughs> you don't offer the facilities we need. Yeah, yeah. You don't offer the facilities we need so we don't come. But really, you know, from a woman's point of view, if, if you could look after my child for two hours and I could play nine holes, I, I would love that. But for me to fit golf in around everything else, so I'm currently having golf lessons um, because it's time to improve my swing. Um, but I'm having to do it in work time because it's the only time that I can take an hour of my day without having to find a, someone to sit with my child or, you know, to juggle everything else that I do. And so I find myself now in that position of not being able to fit in a round of golf and also not having women to play with. Mm -hmm. And that is a massive issue for me is that the club that I'm at um, – I'd say I'm probably the youngest person there by about 10 years. Mm -hmm. And although the women there are on the most part lovely, apart from the ones who chased me around a golf course for accidentally taking their tea time, that really happened. Wow. Um, it's, <laughs> it's hard to find somebody who wants to play golf with me at the time that I want to play golf. So I would say to this day, and bearing in mind how long I've played golf for, I have never played a round of golf just with women. Wow. Hmm. That's extraordinary. Yeah. Never. That is extraordinary. Yeah, that's it, and it is extraordinary. And this only occurred to me recently. <laughs> but I was having a conversation with somebody about genderless tees and how hard it is because most of the time I play with men. So if I'm on a corporate day or I've gone to go and play like a, a PGA event or something like as a PGA partner, and I'll be put with a group of men because they like to split the women through the groups so that it looks like there's more of us. And so you'll have three guys on the, on the tee and then me and my tee, and they all hit the ball further than I do anyway. So as well as kind of them waiting for me to tee off and then I tee off, I don't hit it as far and I'm panicking, putting everything in my bag to try and make sure that I catch up with them to join in with the conversation to get to me having the next shot. It's exhausting. It's mm -hmm. thoroughly, thoroughly exhausting. Well, that's interesting and, about yeah, the experience I think, once uh, you is it, get to golf. So we've conned women into playing golf, Nicole. Yeah. Said, okay, they've been and hit the ball a few times. Okay, that's fun and interesting. I'm going, I'm going to go and play. And this is what they're confronted with. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's staggering, isn't it? Kind of probably yeah. being judged it, the whole way really around hard. as well for your yeah. behaviour as well. Of course, oh, of course, that's a given. Yeah, like, of course, absolutely, that's a given. Knowing me, I've got the wrong clothes on. And 
Nicole, you're a successful you're a successful businesswoman with an interest in golf, so you have an understanding of business as well. How is it that multiple multinational companies who are in the business of golf can get to the point where they ignore such a significant part of the population as potential customers. Equipment companies? Deliberately. Yes, equipment companies. Deliberately. But they shrink it and pink it, Rod. Okay. (laughs) Is this another episode? Should we start another episode (laughs) for this one? We can pause and you can refill your wine if you like. It is. I'm looking at the bottle. (laughs) It absolutely, it baffles me. It really, really baffles me. Yeah, the the. Okay, so we're going to be a modern, forward-thinking um, brand, and we're not going to do it in pink, but we'll do it in teal. Of course, uh, it, it's just it is. It's shrink it and yeah, shrink it and pink it. I'm going to steal that. I like that. Um, I, I do. I find it astonishing, but there's there's that argument that we hear in every single level of the golf industry. This is the way it's always been. It's been okay for me, so we don't need to change it. And and that that's the case. It really is. When they're looking at brands, brands don't care about growing the women's game because at the end of the day, all they care about is selling golf equipment. And the people who buy golf equipment are predominantly men. And if you look at it as a business person and you have numbers and you have a spreadsheet what are you going to do? You're going to put all your marketing budget towards the men's game because at the end of the day, that is where the majority of a business is. It takes a really, really brave person to look at that un, that new market, that market that's not been tapped into and think about, okay, well, how do we develop products they need? How do we market to them? Where are they? How do we find them? Because it's not easy to find women. You know, it's not like putting an advert on the PGA Tour or putting an advert in one of the big golf magazines where you're going to hit 70,000, you know, 30, well, depends what you're reading. But, you know, you're going to hit like thousands and thousands of golfers. You look at the biggest female golf magazines in the world and you're still only hitting 20,000 golfers. And only, you know, X amount percent of those are going to buy your products. So it's, it's a real, I can understand as a business person why brands don't do it. But to the same extent, it, it, it thoroughly annoys me that I'm sat, I sit there with clients and they're like, oh, no, we're not going to promote the female range. We're going to spend everything in men's magazines. Like, why would you do that? What's the point yeah. of even making them? I've almost, I've, almost got, yeah, I've almost got more respect for brands who just say, do you know what? We're not going to have a women's line at all. Yeah, because that's right. more respectful yeah. than going, yeah, well, we've got, we've got this stuff here. <laughs> Yeah. And you know that a sales guy, when he goes into a pro shop, he's not going to get the female clubs out. So I know of a really clever initiative that happened in the UK um, with one of the club manufacturers, and they made every single one of their sales reps get their female product out first when they went into a pro shop, and they checked up on them. And that was the way they were taught to sell, is get the female product out first, don't sell them so don't show them the men's driver until it's the last thing in your bag. And that was the only way that they managed to get women's products into these shops. For the, for the equipment, I mean, it, the, it, it goes to the design as well. I mean, we talked about, you know, from everything from colours to... But just calling a driver a female driver as well doesn't necessarily make sense, mm. does it? That, I mean, it, it's a reflection of where we're at. No. But, uh, you know, when it comes to equipment, it really should be about skill level, shouldn't it? 
Yes, of course. But more <laughs> to the point, doesn't the structure of golf give the manufacturers an out? And it always has because they can always put their hands up and say, it's not our job to grow the game. It's the job of the RNA and the USGA. No. That's what they should be doing. That's their role, not for us to worry about, which if you mm. want to just have the same sized business and stay there is a fabulous idea. But it has always staggered me, why don't shareholders hold these companies to account and say there is 50% of the population, mm -hmm. the bulk of whom you not only ignore, you are hostile towards, who have the money and quite possibly the desire to purchase the product and you don't service the market. Yeah. It beggars belief. It really does. Yeah. You just, and, 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 it really and, does. Well, you know, I've Look at golf in South Korea. Take the professional golf model and women's golf, the women's professional tours, are by far more popular than men's tours. So there's not some inbuilt human gene that makes women's golf less interesting to men or women. There's, there's no excuse for it. It is just – it's tripe. And and they, been, they, they have and they continue. I've never seen a genuine effort to promote the game either to men or women by any of the major manufacturers. Never. Apart from perhaps the Solheim Cup. Yeah, I mean, the Solheim Cup is, I mean, it's probably my favourite event I've ever been to. I went to um, Glen Eagles oh, no. and there is nothing more, there's nothing more enjoyable than being on a first tee with women booing at each other. It's <laughs> hilarious. Like, you, Fantastic. It, it is one of the funniest things I have ever, ever witnessed was women booing at each other. There's no, like, there's no determination to it at all. But that's like, but it's such a great, it's such a great event to showcase golf. And that is one of the only times that, that female golf is properly showcased. Even when you see, you know, golf on female golf on TV, it's not presented in a way that makes it exciting to watch. You know, they they will only show certain parts of the game. Like they'll show they'll show the putts. And that's not where all the skill lies. The skill lies in other areas of their game and the way that they negotiate a golf course and the skill that comes in not being able to drive as far as a man can, for instance, and thinking about that next shot. And, you know, it's it's such a more technical game, I think, to a certain extent. And that part of the game isn't necessarily always shown on television. It's just not given in the same way. But I, I do. I get, I'm get. i really disappointed with brands and their lack of interest in the female side of the sport. And if you look at, you know, if you look at the way that Nike grew female running just by showing more female runners and female runners of all shapes and all sizes all out running in the roads and, you know, these amateur women who that's that was their release and their joy and their love, they grew their own market. You know, so it's absolutely possible for a brand to get behind female golf and to grow the numbers of female golfers. And if they did, you know, women are incredibly loyal, you know, in the same way that as a man, if you like fall in love with a particular driver brand, that's pretty much the driver brand you're going to have in your bag for the rest of your life. Women are exactly the same. We buy in exactly the same way, you know. So it's, I do hope, I do hope there's a company out there and I think it will take a female in a leadership role within a brand to go, do you know what, this is not okay. You know, there are hundreds of thousands of women out there who are not using our products. Let's speak to them and then let's get their friends using our products too. We're still a long way away, sadly, Nicole, when even the world's best women players 
are not used to market the products that they're paid to use. And in fact, worse, yeah. both InB Park and Kari Webb, both seven-time major winners, have been asked to pay for golf clubs. It's a, it is beyond staggering to consider that that might be the case. Yeah, it is. It really is. It's, it, there's such a disparity between the two professional games and I don't think that people are really quite aware of how bad that is and I think that equipment manufacturers almost need to be shamed mm. into admitting how little they pay women and and brands as well. Yeah, indeed. I, I, when I interviewed Carrie Webb and we talked about this topic, she said, in part, the players contribute to the problem by wearing the branded stuff for free in the hope that at some point down the track mm-hmm. they'll be rewarded for that. And so it sort of perpetuates itself. If yeah. if every player on the LPGA said, I'm not wearing anything I don't get paid to wear, which is exactly what happens on the PGA Tour, and you see players going, Scott Piercy was blank at the weekend, no sponsorship logos at all. Patrick Reed wears mm-hmm. something, doesn't he, that he has to buy off the rack? I think he's, he hasn't got a clothes deal. Really? Yeah, I think so. I don't think that's – well, does he have – anyway. Really? Pa- <laughs> Patrick in a different <laughs> – I'm sure he gets enough from work day to buy his shirts. But, but there's there's sort of – there's issues around that. I, I find that sort of – yeah, the, the manufacturers don't do much in terms of, uh, of growing the game. What, what does golf do right with its marketing? Yeah. Nicole? What does golf get right? What does it do right? Uh, it convinces men that if they buy a new driver, they're going to hit it further and straighter. <laughs> Not true. Yeah. Are you sure? <laughs> Not true. but yeah. no. It's never been true, but it's always been. And I think that, that's true of everyone, yeah. It is true. That that really is. You know, there's um back in my early career I did um I did a lot of work for a Kushnet. Uh, they were one of the clients in the company that I worked for. And uh yeah, it always kind of reminded me of working for a for a for a washing for a washing um like washed soap company. So you would see these adverts, it's like the whiter than white. <laughs> and it's like every single item that came out from do you know what I mean? It's like yep. this is the best white we've ever had, um, but every single product that came out, there was like I think it was a cycle of like six months for new clubs, and every new club had a new feature or a new design or a new kind of, you know, forged aluminium something or other. And mm. I became extremely expert in in knowing the technical fabrication of things, which was so boring to everybody else, but really interesting to me because I'm a bit of a geek on the inside. Um, but yeah, but when you look at club manufacturers, it was just let's baffle these people with science and use things like COR and MOI mm. and hope that nobody asks us what that actually means. And have Dustin Johnson tells them that it goes ten yards further for me, or if it worked for Dustin, it'll surely it'll work for me as well. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> One final, just I've got a marketing professional here. I was in a conversation. <laughs> I've got a trip to sell. How do I do it? <laughs> I was in a conversation uh, at a golf club the other day that was discussing we should put a restaurant in and bring people in from the suburb. And I was trying to point out that I don't, I don't know. I don't think people from the suburb are going to come. There's this big gate there, which is pretty intimidating and a high hedge that people can't see over. And when if you do get through the gate, then there's no signage. It's this very intimidating sort of a building with uh, nobody standing there to welcome you or something. Like, how are they even going to know where the restaurant is? 
it's just not the sort of thing I can see somebody walking in off the street and saying, okay, I, yeah, table for two. Like, it's just, I can't see it happening. But they were adamant. It's like, oh, no, of course, people, you know, you just advertise it and people will come. And I just, I, I couldn't see that happening. But uh, so I suggested, oh, maybe we need to open up the gates and bring down the fence a little bit so people Are you can insane? see in. And that was exactly the reaction <laughs> I got. Then people will come in. <laughs> That's, but what, what does... What does a golf club, what's your professional advice to a golf club that wants to put a restaurant in and have it open to the- So have non-golfers subsidise the golf activity? Is that essentially what we're talking about? That was exactly part of the conversation. It was like, okay, well, then we can, you know- The local residents who don't have all this money that we can use to put into the golf course. Yeah, Yeah. wonderful. What do you reckon, Nicole? No, uh, the gate gate question is a very good one because, you know, anything that has a gate on it- you, you end up having, asking yourself the question, is it to keep them in or to keep us out? <laughs> and, and that's what a gate is for, isn't it, ultimately? Yep. Um, I think I think it's very hard. I think that, you know, it obviously depends on the demographic of the people within the area. If they're the kind of people who would go to a golf club environment, then it's easy to market to them because, you know, ultimately a restaurant and a golf club is going to hit a certain demographic. But if it's not the kind of person who would want to go into a golf club environment, then you can't encourage them to go in with food. That's not going to work. You know, if you're going to feel out of place when you walk through the door, then there's no reason to go there. You know, there's we've seen, you know, around here, there's a couple of places, golf clubs that have opened restaurants, some successfully, some not. I mean, if you can get yourself a relatively well-known chef and then that chef becomes the allure and becomes the polling is the person who gets them to come through the door it has to be a reason for them to come and the food on its own is not enough that's the thing so you know if you can give them a good reason to come in then yes but otherwise it's it's not going to work or it becomes word of mouth you know you create an event and you get local people to come along and they try the food and then the food is brilliant and then that will kind of create a bit of a snowball effect but you have to invite people in and by that don't say we've got a restaurant it has to be we have a restaurant our opening night is this it's at this time and you're free to come in it's like a proper invitation to a place with a date and a time um, when they know that if they cross over that boundary, they're welcome. Mm. Um, and that welcome is really important. And when they get to the golf club, they have to see what they expect to see. Um, so many marketing campaigns fall down because it's like, hey, yeah, we're young and funky. And then you get in and they're old am, and am not I, funky. Or am I the right place? Like yeah, this, this so, <laughs> you see that with people coming yeah, in for exactly. wedding This is functions. not what I was expecting. Yeah. People come into golf clubs, uh, often that's yeah. their first exposure to a golf club is a wedding function at a golf club. Mm-hmm. And if you if you observe them in the car park, they're completely lost. Yeah. They're like, oh, is this the right place? Like, what? Are, and they sort of weave their way towards the clubhouse. <laughs> some, some door over there that like, looks like it might be in it. Exactly. Golf clubs have mastered, have they not, making people feel uncomfortable, including golfers. You go to a different golf club to your own mm. and you automatically – feel uncomfortable. It's almost like it's your responsibility to be uncomfortable in a golf club house. Have you ever circled a golf club, like the building, like wondering like, which way should I go Yeah, in? absolutely. Is, is this one okay to come in yeah, this absolutely. door or should I go follow the pro shop signs or something? You kind of circle a golf club house, don't you? I, you kind of I have, can, which, yeah. How should I attack it from? <laughs> That's exactly right, Nicole. I can, I can go one up on that. So I will sit in a car park in a car and wait to see which door see people what, go Yeah, through. see what other people are doing. <laughs> An ambush. Yeah. 
the golf club I am not even kidding (laughs) I I, I feel I feel yeah I feel like you might have heard me say this somewhere because I genuinely I will sit in the car and I will wait to see what the right door is what's the done thing because the amount of times I've gone through the wrong entrance yeah Yeah. (laughs) like what where is the door some clubhouses have grand entrances that they only use for the president's captain's dinner or something (laughs) like that you go through that at your peril like like, oh no we're not using that entrance today yeah and then there's you mean this grand thing here with the doors and the big staircase leading up to it. <laughs> yeah, and then there's a sign that says, ladies, this way. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. Isn't the, the tragedy, to, to finish up, and we've taken more of your time than I meant to, Nicole, but to finish up, of course, the tragedy of all of this is that golf itself, the game, is so fantastic. And all of these things that we've built up around it, everything we've talked about today drives people away from what can be the most fulfilling and satisfying lifelong interest. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I do. I find it, I find it really sad that people don't get the opportunity to to experience it for themselves. Because, like you say, there's and everybody will understand that there's that moment when you make a proper connection with a ball and it goes flying, and you know there's a golfer in you somewhere, very well hidden in my case, but there's still a golfer in me there somewhere, and. But just kind of the the honour and the respect and the camaraderie that comes with playing around a golf, whether it's with like family or friends, you know, there's there's very few opportunities in life now where you can spend a couple of hours on in the outdoors chatting to people in a relaxed atmosphere, having a bit of fun, whether you're competitive or not. And, you know, the more people who get to experience that, the better. And, you know, I'm really keen to kind of, use my voice to try and make those opportunities happen for people and you know I, I do a lot of work kind of talking to young people about golf and you know employment opportunities as well you know the opportunity to come and work in the industry like you touched on before that there's so many different jobs mm. you can do mm-hmm. and there's so many different opportunities because I think that you know some of my best experiences as a, as a child and I know it's cricket I'm going to talk about but um, were being in that club environment and being surrounded by really inspirational people who had fantastic jobs and really interesting careers who gave me the confidence and the courage to kind of go out into the world and do things a bit differently. And I think that you get that in a golf club because there's so many different people from so many different environments. And to have a young person touched by those people and to understand there is so much more out there there's so many different things that you can do um i think there's yeah it's it's not just about the game it's about the knowledge and relationships that come with it and i think that's really lost on you know the the younger generation even the generation younger than me it's you know we they don't see it in the same way that we did that you know club culture was really important for shaping yeah for shaping me and my career definitely well, it is an industry, isn't it? Golf is an industry, and it crosses over multiple different other uh, industries as part of it. So, Nicole, it's been absolutely fabulous to catch up with you. We really appreciate you taking the time. Um, it's been terrific to talk. There's a bunch of stuff we didn't get to, but I'm sure we will at some point. Congratulations on the work that you do there. Where can people find you and Mediate? Yeah, the website is um, mediateltd.co.uk. Um, I'm Nicole Mediate on Twitter, I think. Um Although I only dip into Twitter every now and again, so you'll be lucky to find me there. <laughs> but DMs, DMs are definitely the place to find me. Mm-hmm. And it's Mediate, M-E-D-I, numeral eight. Very clever, Mediate. 
genius. Yeah, isn't that's it? right. It's not quite talking golf with just the one G, but it was it's, the hardest thing I ever a, did to come up with a name for the company. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've done well. Don't start another one because you've nailed the name and you don't want to get sidetracked having to come up with another one. <laughs> No more, no no more. (laughs) Great to talk today. Really appreciate it. And I look forward to catching up again soon. Thanks very much. Thank you. And Logue, look forward to, appreciate your time today and really looking forward to getting the show notes from you at some point. I've I've made a few notes. I've been seeing you there tapping away. I've got the game there already. Yeah, fabulous. will be coming to you very shortly. Episode 105, done of the Good Good Golf Podcast. Back with episode 106 next week here on the Good Good Golf Podcast.